Hi, this is Andrew Goodall and Charlie Goodchild, and you're listening to the Health Space Podcast. This is the podcast where we dive deep into health-related questions and topical issues relevant to us all. The world of health and medicine is messy, full of contrasting opinions and misleading advice. We will challenge myths and common misconceptions by exploring the evidence and speaking to leading experts along the way. We are physiotherapists and have been friends since university and share the same belief that everyone deserves the opportunity to access high quality, up-to-date health information. When it comes to health, we believe that better never ends. Thanks for listening and let's dive straight in. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Space Podcast with me, Andrew Goodall and Charlie Goodchild. Today, we've got another ex-colleague of my own, which is rattling through all the ex-colleagues. Uh, but this guy absolutely nails this niche that we wanted to talk about. He's started his own clinic out west. He's even changed his name officially on Instagram to reflect uh, cycling. So he hopefully knows quite a bit about this topic. Uh, he's a very keen cyclist himself. Uh, specializes in all things cycling injuries and also bike fit which is something we're going to look to dive into so today we have brian mcculloch with us hey brian evening chaps lovely to be here and what andy hasn't mentioned is he's brought another guest with him today he's got his ladder back in the study with him today so um for all your audio guests just want, want to let you know that there might be a little ladder that falls on on him in, in the background so yeah it's good to have the ladder back yeah it's the trusty steed that's the one for getting up in the loft when i'm just Binning off some of Vicky's summer clothing or something. Thanks for coming in today, though, Brian. Um, hopefully, the ladder doesn't get in the way too much. But um, I, I wonder if you could get us started by giving us a bit of an introduction, where you've been, what you've done, what really got you into cycling, because there is a bit of a rumor that went round that it was a deep love of spandex from a failed wrestling career. Is that is that the truth? <laughs> I've definitely tried every sport that involves lycra yeah i rode at university then i took up triathlon did quite a bit of triathlon and then just got into cycling because i realized the other bits of triathlon didn't interest me all that much or i wasn't that good at them i can't remember which it was but no i mean uh, i think i've always i've always had an interest in cycling i'm probably showing my age here but when i when i was growing up in ireland we were in the throes of a bit of a cycling revolution we had sean kelly winning green jerseys at the tour de france and monuments we had stephen roach uh, who won the Tour de France and the Giro and the World Championships uh, all in one year, which has only ever been done by another cyclist, uh, Eddie Merckx. So, you know, Ireland was going absolutely crazy and you couldn't you couldn't help but get sort of involved uh, in that sort of excitement. So I was I was riding lots when I was a kid, you know, riding to school, going out to the Wicklow Mountains, all that kind of stuff. And so it was always in the background and, you know, never, never necessarily got to the forefront, didn't do any racing or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I had that passion for sport anyway. Obviously, I've studied physiotherapy and I've been qualified something in the region of 16 years. I don't like to think too specifically about that. But um, yeah, kind of going through, focused in on MSK stuff. And then when I was working abroad in Bermuda, uh, that's when I really got exposed to cycling and triathlon. It was a real, really kind of bit of a hotspot for cycling and triathlon. So I ended up seeing a lot of those uh, athletes treating, working with them, starting to get really interested in it, got into it myself again in a big way. And uh, yeah, I think the more I worked with cyclists and with triathletes, the more I started to kind of try to get a better idea as to what was going on behind the injuries and a little bit more, you know, thinking about the bike setup and that, that sort of aspect. And so when I came back to the UK, uh, which I somewhat begrudgingly did, I did my master's in sports medicine and then did my, all my research project was on triathlon injuries. 
and kind of from there I just kicked on started to study more about bike fit learning how that kind of played a role in in injuries and overall in in, in working with rehab and getting people back to fitness so built those two things together and actually my msk practice you know i'd always been since then been doing bike fit and uh you know, brought that with me in the clinics i was working in and um yeah as as andy alluded to i moved out towards bath which is where i'm based now and decided to in the kind of in, in the shambles that we were all experiencing in 2020 decided then it was a good time to set up my own clinic and start off a new business but thankfully, with the ex- sort of explosion that we've had in cycling, it's been a good time to be there to help cyclists get comfortable, uh, recover from injuries and, and get and get into riding, really. So, yeah, it feels like somewhat good timing, I suppose. With us both getting into cycling as a result of uh, as a result of a silly challenge that we've got coming up, which we'll sort of go into later. We've both sort of experienced the, the difficulty just getting our hands on on equipment getting our hands on bikes getting our hands on on anything related to it so i can imagine the clinic has uh like you say seen a bit of an explosion of people wanted to come in and set the bikes up and just generally get themselves going yeah absolutely and there's been a real mix you know there's been there's been clapped out old bikes coming in where you know someone's dragged it out of their shed and thought i'm gonna get back to this and there's been you know people who were lucky enough to get new bikes and there's been new problems presented with people suddenly, you know, when, when we were in lockdown and people were confined largely indoors and they were on a turbo train or an indoor bike, you know, completely. We saw new injuries come to light there from the fact that they were on a fixed bike completely for all their training or dramatic increases in training. So we saw lots of really interesting sort of training load injuries uh, from either dramatically increased training or increased intensity or new training. So that definitely kind of presented a new and interesting challenge as well. And I think, like you said, with, with that sort of growth of new cyclists, I felt it was a great time to sort of embrace it because there's a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of snobbery within cycling. And I think people look at it as somewhat of an exclusive rather than an inclusive sport. And and the gear, whether it's the bikes or the Lycra, is one of those things that I think is almost like a barrier. People look at that and think, I'm not sure I want to be putting all that Lycra on. My, my feeling on that is, you know, you don't need to wear Lycra to ride a bike. And, and some people are very anti it. The bottom line is you've got to feel comfortable riding your bike and you've also got to be comfortable on the bike. So, you know, finding suitable clothing is, is important, but it doesn't need to be like it. just needs to allow you to feel comfortable and ride the bike, basically. Can you tell us a bit Have you guys taken it? the plunge to Lycra yet? <laughs> With that in mind. It's on order. It's I have order. a fairly large set of Lycra anyway. You know, it's not necessarily specifically appropriate for cycling, but I've, I've, I've found a use, you know. <laughs> oh, that was from your wrestling career, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about that boom in cycling and the, what, what's happened in the in recent years with participation in cycling? Yeah, well, I mean, there's been there's been a couple of sort of mini booms, hasn't there? Really, I mean, I think we can roll all the way back to the 2004 uh, Olympics where we first saw the British track cycling team uh, have success, uh, and that was at the very start. Chris Hoy's first medals back then, and, and even Bradley Wiggins. And then it was in 2008 when when things really kicked on to a new level at Beijing. And of course, we all know in 2012 the success that Wiggins had uh, winning the Tour de France and then winning the time trial at the Olympics and then again the track program was incredibly successful so I think all of those factors absolutely launched cycling into the forefront of people's attention as a as a great sport and as a great activity you know for uh, we might get into some of the kind of the health benefits and things like that as well but certainly dramatically increased uh, participation levels and and then obviously this more recent sort of change of the pandemic, four years ago, cycling participation levels about, you have about 5 million cyclists. And in, in 2020, that number was up to seven and a half million. So, you know, that's over four years, about 50% increase. And there was a large amount of that in 2020 alone, that increase. 
That's amazing. I, I must say, pre-pandemic, I saw people on bikes, but I feel like I, I I see so many more now. I guess that's the working from home effect as well, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of people, um, you know, either lost uh, lost their physical activity from their commute, but a lot of other people then looked at it as being they got that free time back, you know. So suddenly there was two hours that they got back in their day, and suddenly they were able to then fill it with some exercise. So yeah, a lot of people getting out cycling to try to make up for the fact that they lost an active commute or just the fact that they had time um, to go and do it. So. Yeah, I think there's been there's been lots of different reasons why people have suddenly got out on their bike. And it was one of the things, I guess, in the early stages in their lockdown that you were allowed to do. You could go out once a day to exercise and a bike was a great thing to do. There was no gyms, there was no swimming pool. So, you know, it was a very viable form of form of exercise, really, wasn't it? Is that what kind of highlighted it back to you guys in terms of getting involved? Almost. I, it's probably more we we're, we're always on the lookout for a challenge of some sort i think both of us have said the same since we did the three peaks a few years ago with both really enjoyed that challenge nature of of exercise and we've both given up team sport so that ability to really challenge yourself and be competitive on a regular basis came with challenges so i think once the three peaks was done we then moved on to running and we've both had a couple of half marathons since and then a friend of ours a friend of ours called adam toey he He's decided to cycle to Leeds for charity this year, so he's he, that's a 240 mile cycle, and he he's going to do that over two days. So he reached out to his friend group and said, "Anyone else interested?" Not expecting anyone to say yes, uh, and actually a good good number of us have put our hands up, not with any experience at all. I think I've not cycled longer than 15 kilometers prior to this year in one <laughs> go, um, and not with any any particular. I wouldn't even say a massive interest in cycling prior to this, but the challenge really got me going. And actually, I've really enjoyed it since. I'm sure, Andy, you feel the same. It's just that that desire to push on and challenge your body. Yeah, I'm still getting used to riding without stump pegs. <laughs> yeah, who didn't grow up with a BMX, right? I mean, that was that was the first thing I rode was a BMX. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. Things, have, things have changed since then quite a bit. I mean, yeah, BMX is still pretty big, I guess. The road yeah. bike's quite hard to wheelie as well. That's what I found. Yeah, it actually is really tough, which is annoying. Well, let's let's make sure you guys definitely take some videos of your attempts because <laughs> I think that would be, be some great uh, Instagram material uh, yeah. for sure. Okay, let's get on topic. So what think, advice would you give to someone that wants to take up cycling? I would say, you know, you want to feel comfortable, and it's as I said. It, cycling has this sort of snobbery issue uh, and I think that can make it feel exclusive rather than inclusive and the thing there is to be just any any bike is good enough to get started with it, it, you don't have to have you know endless uh, endless resources you don't have to have the best bike and, and in fact my, my feeling on that is actually nowadays you can get such incredibly reliable and great running and efficient bikes for so much better money than, than I think you used to be able to that actually entry-level bikes are tremendous value for, for what they can do now in terms of how, how light they are, the gears they've got, and, and their, you know, their capabilities. So you don't need to spend a fortune. That would be my first thing to say. Even if you've got a bike, get riding on a hybrid bike if you've got one lying around the garage. Just just get into riding and see how you enjoy it, you know, rather than spending a fortune and realising maybe it's not for you or you, you, know, you prefer a different activity. So the other thing that's great about just starting off on a, you know, any old garage bike is you get that benefit of them being able to make an upgrade and, and, and get a you know new set of wheels or, or a lighter bike or a faster bike or you know different gears and you go punch in at the top level and you're new to cycling you, you may not notice any of the differences that are you know truly there 
I liken it to, you know, drinking wine. If you're not, if you're not a real wine enthusiast and someone gives you a 200 pound bottle of wine, I'm not going to have a clue. I won't tell you the difference between, you know, a 200 pound bottle of wine and a 50 pound bottle of wine. So the subtleties are just not there to be noticed. So get a good quality entry level bike or if a bike that you've got it, start to enjoy riding it, feel comfortable, build up your distances gradually. Um, and, and those are the sort of simple things to start to see if you enjoy it. And then, yeah, take it from there. And what would you say the health benefits are with, with regard? I mean, the obvious is that you're exercising, but could we maybe just go into a little bit more detail about specifically the health benefits for cycling, perhaps? Yeah, so I think, yeah, quite simply, the health, health benefits are myriad. So I think, obviously, a lot of the health benefits that you derive from cycling would just be the more broad health benefits that we see from exercise. Uh, things like cardiovascular health and fitness, weight management, cycling in particular, great from a weight management perspective, because the weight distribution is away from some of the key weight brain joints to your knees so it tends to be those who've perhaps previously struggled with knee osteoarthritis might be able to cycle whereas they couldn't do other load bearing physical activities so that's one of the other side benefits there but but also all the psychological things mood helping with anxiety helping with depression that that we see with with all forms of exercise and i think people get concerned about the the risk reward or the the, the risks to health benefits sort of ratio and Cycling UK summarized it brilliantly when they looked at the available research and they've estimated that the risk to health benefit ratio is 13, between 13 to 1 and 415 to 1 in terms of health benefits outweighing the risks that cycling may pose. So I think when you put it, when you put it out like that, you can realize that it's, it's kind of a no-brainer as an activity to pick up. And even, even further than that, there was a brilliant study. It's quite old now, actually, but probably one of the biggest studies um, in Denmark which had 30,000 people over 15 years, and they found that they had a 40% lower all-cause mortality um, than those than non-cyclists. You just can't deny that incorporating cycling or that element of physical activity into your life is not a positive thing when you see numbers of a study of that size over that duration on that broader spectrum of population. So, you know, these are people who are just commuting or going to do some shopping on their bikes. So those that cycle as part of their life 40% lower or cause mortality. And you mentioned the safety element there about that risk to benefit ratio. What is the, the risk or the safety components to cycling? Is that something people should worry about? Is, is there an element of where it depends where you live or how you cycle? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, I think, look, th there's no getting away from it. Um, most cycling, uh, not all cycling, obviously, but most cycling will take place on the roads. Uh, we share the roads with trucks, cars, lorries and motorbikes. And as such, cyclists are vulnerable road users, being that they're completely exposed. You know, the only not to safety of being, being a helmet. Yeah, unfortunately, there are fatalities with cycling, approximately 100 a year, up to 13,000 minor injuries over the course of a year. But if we look at that in the context of how many bike rides, National Tra Travel Survey looked at, looked at this and there's one fatality for every 9 million bike rides. If we focus on wow, 99 fatalities in a year, we might be extremely concerned. But I think what you have to do is look at that in the broader context of how many bike rides, for example, are taking place or just to, just to give you a slightly more balanced picture of the overall risk profile. Do you know that's the kind of absolute risk versus relative risk sort of argument there and just trying to see, see both sides of the coin. So they've, they've also looked at percentage of percentage chance of injury. So 5% chance of an injury from a thousand hours of cycling. So chances are you guys should be all right if you plan carefully and prepare for, for, for your ride. But 
But as I said, you know, yes, we are on roads. We do have to share the roads with cars and other vehicles. And there's certainly arguments for and against whether rural versus urban riding is safer. Of course, in more urban areas, there's higher concentrations of traffic and vehicles uh, and cyclists, and therefore more journeys uh, on bikes uh, are, take place in urban areas. But of course, there's also infrastructure for cycling in urban areas. So that, that's kind of on, on, on the kind of positive side. In rural areas, what we tend to have is um, higher speed roads. So you'll find that out on rural roads, there's either de-restricted or national speed limit roads. They're often narrower, potentially more unsighted. So those factors and, and narrower. So those factors can lead to um, higher passing speeds of cars going past cyclists and risk of injuries there. So it, unfortunately, it is really swings and roundabouts. There are risks in both ways on both sides. But the ultimate sort of underlying piece there is that like relatively speaking, cycling is an extremely safe sport. Of course, accidents happen. But I go back to saying the data there that suggests that there's one fatality for every 9 million bike rides should reassure most people that cycling is a safe sport to take up. And I would just encourage that those that are new to cycling and are nervous can look to find what they call bikeability training. So to actually get confident. And if you go onto the Cycling UK website, there's lots of information and guidance on where people can learn to get proficient at cycling and safe at cycling you know we can't legislate for other road users and, and their safety and their skills but of course we can improve our own safety on the road by being aware of how to position our bike safely look around us and ride safely so i think that's a really important thing for people to be aware of right i imagine as well there's been a fair amount of sort of technical advancement in safety within the bike i'm talking like brakes um you know and the equipment and such like helmets and stuff as well like i know just from using a bike 15 years ago in terms of like how good the brakes are on the road bike I'm using now compared to what I've experienced before. And I'm sure there's obviously a cost differential depending on how much you spend as well. But generally speaking, it seems that the equipment is, is much further along than, than it was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what I was saying just there before about what you can get for an entry level bike now compared to before. Um, probably one of the biggest changes you'll see in terms of visually is bikes now nearly across the board. Uh, the industry is changing over to disc brakes. Technology has been in mountain biking for years. The stopping power in all conditions, dry and wet, is phenomenal. I have to say I wasn't totally convinced personally when I first got a bike that had disc brakes on it. But when I went to ride my rim brake bike the week following, and I suddenly thought, wow, stopping distance and stopping power was very different. So, yeah, things like brakes, gears, control, yeah, helmets and all the technology goes along with it is has changed a lot. I mean, even things like there's various cycling apps that can help with providing position. So if you've been in an accident, it'll send out basically the accelerometer in your phone or if you've got a GPS device will detect that a sudden change, a sudden deceleration has occurred, which may be consistent with a crash. And if it's not, you can cancel the, the, um, the emergency send out, which will basically contact a number that you've pre-stored and tell them that you've had an accident and it will give your location. So for things like that, so if an accident has happened, your ability to get help has, has dramatically improved. So both cycling apps, such as Strava, which does, uh, they've got a, a piece within the app called Beacon, which will essentially allow you to alert someone if something's happened to various other GPS devices that will do that. So as I said, based on accelerometers, which is really cool. Uh, and, and, and all those sort of things contribute to making cycling and then helping cyclists feel safer on the roads to go out on a ride and feel that, you know, they'll be okay. And as physios, we can't help but be interested in the, the, the sort of more typical musculoskeletal side of, of, of injury. So what are the, the chances of someone getting a musculoskeletal injury in cycling? And 
how does that compare across the board in general cycling so well cycling injuries if, if we look at them we kind of we kind of split them down the middle between acute traumatic injuries so fall off a bike have a crash etc and overuse injuries or sort of uh, non-traumatic injuries the research is generally split in the middle uh, in terms of published studies looking at the relative injuries you have about 50 percent will be traumatic and about 50 percent will be overuse injuries so if we want to think about those overuse injuries or those msk injuries it's an extremely low number in terms of the number of injuries per hours ridden compared to rugby compared to football compared to tennis so again relatively speaking we're talking it's it's a low number but having said that we do still see quite a lot of musculoskeletal injuries and obviously that's that's what i'm engaged with on a day-to-day basis with the cyclists that i work with so there's obviously a number of factors that will sort of center around that. The main things being we've got a sustained posture on the bike. So we're, we're in a hip hinged lumbar flexion, thoracic flexion, cervical extension, sustained position. We're having a repetitive motion through the hip, knee and ankle through that same pedal stroke, hip and knee extension flexion. We then have the element of capacity versus loading. So how much riding are you doing compared to the capacity and that capacity is specific. So I think, you know, you guys are both fit, done half marathons in the past, but I'm sure as you've got into riding, you've noticed that the fitness that you had doesn't necessarily directly transfer across, you know, a great runner doesn't necessarily find himself immediately ready to be able to cycle a hundred miles. Does that, does that, I don't know, does that, does that chime with you guys in terms of your experiences of getting on the bike? Absolutely. Yeah. It's just a very different quads load. That was my sensation. It's like, I always thought I had reasonably strong quads and then you get on a bike and go up a hill and you think, wow, my quads are just nowhere near cycling fit. And that, that was the real experience I had. I, I probably noticed that more than anything. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And I think, and the same goes the other way around. So obviously cycling in itself is generally largely a very concentric muscle activity uh, sport compared to running where there's lots of eccentric muscle moments occurring. So generally speaking, you won't get that same amount of DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness due to the fact that there is a lot less eccentric muscle activity going on there. Having said that, you'll get a very different type of sort of muscle soreness. And I think, Andy, you mentioned that earlier, that sort of that feeling of your legs feeling a bit empty, that feeling of your legs being drained. It's not the same as that sort of sort of more acute DOMS type pain, is it? Before we came on, I was, we were, me and Brian were chatting and I was just saying the difference of signing is you, at some point you just feel like you have nothing. It's like you've just drained the tank, not necessarily systemically like do it or sort of a whole body, like doing a massive resistance training uh, session where you're, you know, neuromuscularly, you just feel like blasted uh, and not the same as running where it's quite specific. Sometimes it, it, it yeah, it just feels very different. It just feels very different. Yeah. And so I think knowing that cycling is different and will place different strains in the body um, is, is important to be aware of. And so, as I said, those, those factors, that repetitive motion, creates this sort of amplifier effect you'll go through something like five and a half thousand pedal revolutions per hour so if you go out for a four-hour ride you know twenty thousand pedal revolutions um so if you think of a a small bit of irritation in your your knee or your ankle sorry charlie i don't want you to get worried about your ankle but you can see how if something is stressing an area just slightly that amplifier effect of five thousand revolutions that over an hour can increase to develop a, a degree of irritation that then may cause very low grade tissue inflammation and maybe the start of developing an overuse injury. Uh, and as we well know that these injuries don't necessarily come on necessarily all of a sudden, they can build over time. And if we've got that mismatch in our training loading and our capacity, we can gradually start to see it, a, an injury come about. And, you know, when they present, when we present necessarily with pain is not necessarily when the injury or the problem sort of started. 
the the other things that kind of come up with that we kind of often end up as physios focusing on the musculoskeletal injuries but i think when you work with cyclists you have to also be aware of some of the sort of i suppose maybe pseudo msk so there's there's a lot of pressure related problems with cycling so the pressure related problems come at the contact points and again you know i can i can open that back to you guys but we've got the likelihood of developing neuralgias at the hands so that would be the median nerve so the carpal tunnel and then the ulnar nerve at the guillon canal which is uh, just just as it curls around the on the side of the wrist those two areas there are where cyclists will often develop a lot of hand pressures their hands come up onto the hood or down onto the drops so those are two really common compression neuralgias in the hands in the feet what we what we often find is a problem that's described as either hot foot or sometimes people just term it as morton's neuroma or things like that just kind of as, as a coverall but essentially we're talking about the interdigital nerves so the nerves that sit in between the metatarsal bones if a shoe is either too narrow or is being laced up too tight you'll see that you develop compression between those nerves uh, or blood vessels and start to develop numb or tingling toes and then of course uh, I, I think one that kind of gets a lot of attention is uh, pudendal nerve related issues so genitalia numbness is a, a really important one and it's either not talked about through embarrassment or through some sort of subconscious oh this is just part of cycling and uh, it's something that when I have cyclists coming in for a bike fit that I'll always ask and I'm surprised at how many times cyclists are suffering with those symptoms and not talking about it as part of their problems when they've done a pre-injury sort of questionnaire. So yeah you mentioned about the uh, the gradual build-up of symptom as well about how that escalates and I, I would even say that that is something I've noticed with as I'm getting back from this ankle injury that that you you referenced earlier um, a few weeks in I've started on some shorter rides the way back from a ride I did start to feel just the the, the sort of faintest of, of soreness on my ankle that I would I definitely wouldn't normally feel and it just escalated so quickly and, and it was the intense as the intensity went up a hill it was I could just feel it just there nagging 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 if I dropped the intensity a bit it went away completely it was just su- such a a specific thing that I hadn't really thought about about how how cycling could bring that on and, and, and almost intensity related that's how I found it it was very specifically intensity related is that is that something you find quite yeah. often yeah I mean absolutely and the the intensity of, of any kind of ride will obviously just increase the load on the tissues and if you, you know, in, in the case of your ankle injury, if you're cycling in what are known as clipless pedals, although actually when we talk about clipless pedals, we're talking about the ones with cleats where you clip in. It's a very confusing terminology. But if you're cycling with cleats, then obviously they will, to some degree, dictate your foot position, um, albeit they have what we call a degree of float. So different cleat systems have different amounts of float, which is essentially just a little freedom of movement which is really important because of course we've got, you know, we know we've got a three-dimensional moving joint at the ankle and at the hip and in the, in the knee, we've got a hinge joint again, which has, you know, that, that tibiofemoral rotation is essentially float. And it's that same float that's in a, that's in a pedal. So again, Charlie, if you were, you know, if you're riding in cleats, then, you know, that it may well be that that cleat position is just not allowing your ankle to position itself where it wants to be right now as it recovers. And so, you know, if you're in that situation, I'd be suggesting to you for a couple of weeks is pedal on flats you put your ankle exactly where you want to put it for the next couple of weeks until you feel that you've got that range of motion back and that resilience back in there to be able to clip back in. I'm not even at that stage yet. So it just shows how far away I am from really pushing. So yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a relief. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll probably, I'll, in fact, I bought the cleats and they arrived the day I did my injury. So I need to 
try them first <laughs> try not to unclip on that side because that's probably the worst thing i can do for my ankle and then uh, get used to them from from go really well simple simple bit of advice there is yeah absolutely you're right yeah engage and disengage primarily as your stop start on your uninjured leg but also most pedal systems will have a spring tension adjustment and you can dial that right the way down so that the disengagement is quite easy and i again recommend that to any cyclist who was first starting to use cleats and clip in pedals is to turn that spring tension down nice and low and before you go out and ride practice that motion of being able to catch the toe push in and that's whether, whether you're using a road style cleat or a mountain bike so mountain bike style cleats are generally the ones that are within a sort of a rubber outsole and the cleat is sort of recessed into the sole and a road cleat is kind of protrudes onto the base of the shoe and again and both even though they're called mountain bike cleats both are completely appropriate and you know, when I used to commute in London, um, I would always wear a mountain bike shoe just because it meant I could go off the bike, walk around, and, and it was just a bit more practical, actually. But either way, you can turn the spring tension right down. Uh, that makes it much easier to engage and disengage. And yeah, I generally tell people to practice either on a turbo trainer or an indoor trainer if they have one, or, or just put your bike in between a doorway or next to a wall and practice that motion of clipping in and out. Uh, and then accept the unfortunate reality that pretty much everybody <laughs> experiences <laughs> stopping their bike or falling off their bike without managing to get a foot out of their pedal. So just accept that it will happen at some point and then, you know, move on. You'll try not to make the mistake again. It's a fair bit of discussion in our, uh, in our WhatsApp group about whenever anybody gets a new set of pedals and cleats, it's like, right, when are you going out on your first ride, can you just let me know? Cause I want to be there. <laughs> yeah, so of course uh, that's what a schadenfreude will come back and bite you andy i would say <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm fully expecting uh, uh to be laughed at someone to get a video or whatever so that'll be fine i'll, I'll make sure if someone does get a horrendous video photo of it i'll put it up on instagram just for those um, well you've got to you know it's a great thing you've got to chart that journey of, of getting into cycling i think it's, i think it's a great thing and it's a it's, it's a fun thing to celebrate and look at yeah no definitely so we spoke about injuries and in previous uh, podcast on our page we've always spoke about sort of strength training playing a role in in injury reduction in some in some um, activities exercises and sports uh, does it have a role in cycling for uh, reducing injury and improving performance yeah absolutely I mean I think yeah as, as you as you quite rightly mentioned in all sports over the last kind of 10 15 20 years the research has exploded on demonstrating the positive impact that strength training and specific strength training for sports can have on performance I think it's a difficult one, isn't it, when it comes to uh, injury. I don't like the term injury prevention. Uh, I prefer the more wordy term <laughs> injury risk minimization. It's less catchy, but it's probably a little bit closer to the truth. So, yeah, in, in short, absolutely. Strength training has a big role to play. I mean, I can, I can rattle off a number of things, specifically increasing power output, cycling economy. One of the lesser talked about ones is positional capacity. So I'll give you an example being able to adopt an aerodynamic position does require flexibility. So let's just, I'll keep it simple. It's much more complicated than this, but being able to just get slightly lower and present a smaller frontal area reduces how much your body hits the wind and the rider accounts to 80% of the sort of aerodynamic drag that's generated from, a, from cycling. So flexibility is really important to be able to get a position, but if you haven't got the strength to hold that position, you won't be able to sustain it for any useful performance, whether that's a time trial or a long distance ride. So strength training there to be specifically able to hold a certain position is, is crucial to be able to perform functionally and, and have a good aerodynamic position. Whereas historically people just thought, oh, if I'm flexible, I can get into an aero position. It just doesn't work very well for sustaining it. So Ronestad has 
probably carried out most of the best research that I've read for looking at incorporating strength training programs. So he's demonstrated with eight week programs uh, with strength training performed twice a week. He, they saw improved peak power, improved power output at high lactate concentrations and improved mean power on a 40 minute time trial effort. So, you know, some of those key metrics, there's a few things that obviously haven't changed, although you wouldn't expect them to like VO2 max that doesn't change uh, with strength training to, to the best of our knowledge. A systematic review also showed that a combination of strength and endurance training was better than endurance training alone for improving uh, maximum power. So that was, again, was another positive. Sunday also carried out research that looked at the ability for strength training to improve cycling economy and cycling efficiency. So that's basically just how well your muscles are working and coping at a given um, energy output level. And so essentially strength training reduced the relative output cost, if that makes sense. So there was a, a lower metabolic requirement to produce the effort um, at a same at a kind of a sustained or a consistent power level. Uh, and there's even some research looking at upper body strength. So Sagerstrom looked at improving upper body strength as a way to improve stability on the bike and therefore generate counter force from your upper body. So this will probably make most sense if you imagine when you're going on a climb and you get a, and you get out of the saddle, you've got a requirement to, to counter pull the bike to be able to uh, generate good force. And so they looked at the ability to improve upper body strength as a way to improve power output through the legs. And then obviously between those two, there's a couple of bits of patchy research on core strength, but I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that they're um, specifically all that great in terms of quality, but suffice to say, there is some research showing that core strength was improving riders ability to stabilize um, their position on the bike and therefore generate force through their legs. So obviously every time a rider pushes a pedal down, if there's, if there's, if there's a change of motion of the pelvis over the saddle, we're just essentially losing power in a way that isn't pushing the pedal down and therefore pushing the bike forwards. One of the things that Alex Quinn mentioned on the running podcast that we, we released recently was that many runners tend to avoid strength training so they can run more. But actually, the research found that by sacrificing running sessions, it didn't seem to have a detrimental effect on VO2 max. So that, that seemed to be saying it's OK if you if you don't run quite as much, your strength training will be fine. You'll, you'll still maintain and your performance will still improve. If the evidence doesn't show that, have you noticed that that's the, is that your opinion on it? Is that how you sell it? Yeah. I mean, firstly, I absolutely agree. And, and cyclists and runners tend to have a lot of similarities in that regard is that runners want to run and cyclists want to cycle is what I find. And, and sometimes trying to divert someone's energy away from cycling or running in that regard can be difficult. So they've got to be able to see those tangible changes. And, and it's about going through some of those metrics. And yeah, that, that I said, that systematic review by Yamamoto demonstrated that taking out an endurance session and having a combination of strength and endurance training was more effective than endurance only training. So I, I think that sings exactly to that same message. And, and that's what I would say. It's just that incorporating into training can be difficult for riders at first, because there's no doubt about it. If you carry out and you haven't sequenced your training correctly, if you carry out a heavy strength session, your ride the next day will suffer dramatically. So I generally encourage um, strength training to be done on the same day as a bike ride after the bike ride and um, to therefore allow maximum recovery time from the strength session before the next ride because yeah getting that wrong would very much give a rider an impression that strength training actually just makes their riding worse and they make that decision on a sort of a on, off the cuff very immediately rather than necessarily seeing it over eight weeks which we know strength training has to be carried out for at least eight weeks to start to see the changes that we know it can produce and with the your sort of programming for these sessions uh you've mentioned sort of upper body core 
legs uh, type strengthening. What are we talking in terms of heavy loads, medium loads, light loads, rough type of movements? I don't mean sing a whole sort of strength plan to us, but roughly sort of what's the kind of generalised program you might advise for someone sort of getting into cycling or, or sort of developing cycling a little those are two slightly different questions. Um, so if we look at the research, generally the large majority of this research is carried out on either elite or experienced cyclists. So I think that's the first thing to point out is that there's not a lot of this, this strength training research on um, novice cyclists. But having said that, these, the, the work by Ronestad, for example, is looking at what we would accept or what a strength and conditioning coach would accept as being heavyweight sort of high load strength training. So getting down to sort of six to eight reps over the course of, of a training program. Now, we're not going to, I wouldn't start someone if they're new to strength training at that rep range, I would look to work them towards that over an eight week period. So they might start doing those basic exercise movements, whether it's a, you know, let's do things like a squat, a lunge, hip thrust, something like that, some deadlifts that kind of some of my sort of preferred leg movements, at least we might start them in a sort of a 10 to 12 or 10 to 14 rep range, um, even just starting with body weight or very light weights. And then over that period, progressively work that rep range down and increase that weight. It's been an interesting challenge in the last year where we've not, many people haven't had access to weights or additional loads. We've had to get quite creative as I'm sure you're, you guys in your clinic have too. Uh, because we know that that additional external load is what really helps us work towards dropping that rep range into an effective rep range for development of strength and also sort of achieving that stimulus and that recovery um, and that whole process. So that's how I would look at it. Just in terms of that second part of the question is for a novice cyclist, keep things very simple. I think there's a, there's a temptation to overcomplicate. And for a novice cyclist, actually, probably the biggest thing that they're both sort of mentally, so from a neuromotor and a, and a sort of a purely mechanical perspective, they're actually learning cycling. And it's perhaps not the priority at that point to put in strength and conditioning because they're probably not riding the distances that would necessitate and demonstrate even the benefits of a strength training program, if that makes sense. And as part of your clinical practice and, and, and your business, you offer bike fit service. When, when might that fit into the picture? When, when would you advise that someone might need a bike fit? Yeah, so I mean, bike fit's become a big part of what I do um, over the years. I guess it started as a as an interest, as a sort of a as a question in my mind, as to I'm doing all the right rehab with this uh, with this patient. Why aren't they getting better? Why are they still struggling? Uh, and then obviously, bike fit became that sort of part of that puzzle. I won't say it completed the puzzle, but it certainly became part of it. I suppose it's important to know what it is and what it isn't. Uh, the easiest way to kind of start is say we've got bike sizing, which is essentially hopefully a process that you carry out with some maybe some simple anthropometric measures like your inseam or your overall height uh, leg length things like that and a bike shop should help you if they've given you advice or an online calculator it may help you get the right bike size uh, in terms of the frame size um, so that's kind of the start point a bike fit really then wants to take that bike that's hopefully the right size or in the ballpark and adjust those key contact points that we mentioned so the saddle the handlebar, the hands and handlebars and the, and the kind of the shoe foot sort of foot pedal interface and adjust those contact points in to allow the rider and bike sort of interact most efficiently. I think my, my sort of aim is to ensure that a rider has comfort because everything else will flow from that, whether that's performance, efficiency, stability, uh, endurance, strength, all those things will come from having a good comfortable position. Now, there are times where you might compromise comfort for a particular discipline or level of athlete so let's say for example a very short distance time trial 
we will absolutely compromise comfort to achieve a more aerodynamic position because we know that that will end up with the rider going faster and so that's that's where a compromise is taken but overall comfort is is the first most important thing and as i said that's all about weight distribution so if a rider's weight is not well distributed across those contact points they're going to end up with excessive pressure at one of them so that'll be the rider coming and going i get numb hands uh, i get this pressure in my neck feel this pressure in my lower back or i'm getting tingling pins and needles and numbness in the saddle uh, and so forth so Weight distribution is really important. And essentially what a bike fit allows is for the muscles and joints to work through their optimal ranges of motion, reduces strain on postural muscles by what we talked about there, that balance will improve comfort, has actually demonstrably reduced injury risk and injury risk profile by doing those things that I've mentioned. So getting joints to work at optimal range, improving cycling and pedaling efficiency, improving aerodynamics and, and also bike handling. So again, if you're in a position where you're comfortable and able to reach the handlebars and the width is suitable for you when you're able to reach the gears and brakes you're going to be able to handle your bike more confidently and more safely so with all that considered who should get a bike fit well it'd be very easy for me to say everyone should get a bike fit just keep keep my waiting list nice and long but the reality is if you've got a bike sized up well and you're comfortable and you're not having any of those issues that we've described this evening then i wouldn't necessarily be advocating that that person get a bike fit however the large majority of people are not necessarily that lucky to just get on a bike, set it up and be fine. And as a result, unfortunately, over time, they'll start to develop issues around the knees or shoulders and neck. And like I said, all those overuse injuries that we've already talked about. So anyone can benefit from a bike fit from a commuter riding sort of 10 miles a day to someone who's doing sort of a event like yourselves uh, to someone in elite cycling. So to, to kind of, I think from the outside, a lot of people think, you know, a bike fits just for pro pro cyclists, but it's it's really for anyone and everyone to get comfortable on the bike. Uh, I, th- I saw something the other day. I can't remember who posted this actually, but I, I quite liked it. It was, you know, like a bike fit isn't a one stop shop. At the end of the day, it's a, it could be appropriate for that moment or that type of event or that type of cycling that you're doing at that point. And actually, you might find that you need more as you go through or as you change and whatnot. And and your position might need adjusting. I found that was quite interesting because it's, it's just not a kind of sit on, this is your optimal, off you go. There's more to it than that, obviously. Yeah, definitely. I mean, absolutely. And yeah, I, I know, I know who, I know who said that. Um, and it, it, it's something I'd definitely trumpet as well. This, this idea that uh, a bike fit is a one and done thing, you know, and someone will say to me, I had a bike fit 10 years ago. Uh, I mean, let's face it, your bike fit and your bike position will evolve and change based on the type of riding you're doing, how fit you currently are, what injury you just had, you know, are you preparing for a different event? You've got a new bike. And so bike fit can, can change and evolve over time for lots of different reasons. Yeah. In this case, yeah, I might advocate someone who's riding seriously and putting in a reasonable amount of miles is that they might review that every year. Um, or particularly if they've had an injury, we might need to make adjustments and your bike fit you know, some people come in and they're really specific. You know, my saddle needs to be X, bar position needs to be Y. And my position on that is that there should be, for everyone, there's actually what's called a bike fit window. And and so your saddle height probably has a window of adjustment between maybe eight and 10 mil for someone, could be less for someone else, it could be bigger for someone else. So some people are able to adjust a lot and still cope perfectly well. And that's why I said to you, some people could just hop on a bike and think, no, I'm fine, comfortable, don't need a bike fit, having no issues. So those sort of individuals seem to be able to sort of absorb different changes in position without noticing much of a problem. Whereas others will have a much smaller fit window and you can make much smaller adjustments and they'll start to feel very uncomfortable very quickly. 
So as I said, everyone has a fit window and therefore there are reasons why you might say, look, this is, we're going to put it here today, but you could have it slightly higher or slightly lower. And I think understanding that concept is a really important one so that there's not just one perfect position. If, if one person saw three bike fitters, they probably would end up with three slightly different positions. Another thing that I'd quite selfishly like to ask you is about other factors that you should be considering with longer cycles, um, events such as the one that we're doing. So some of the things that we've already noticed is that neither of us are particularly prepared for these longer training rides. Um, I turned up without any equipment and a couple of friends who are a bit more experienced than we are. They've got inner tubes, they've got all the Allen keys, they've got all the spanners. And I just turn up on my bike with a drink of water and, and a helmet on. And it's, and it was suddenly, like, Oh, right. So I've got this whole other area of preparation that I need. And I know Andy has, has got to the end of some of these longer rides that he's done. And he's just felt absolutely starving, hungry, where he's just had nowhere near enough fuel. So um, we're starting to pick it up, I think through trial and error, but what advice would you give, to, to really help someone be prepared for a, maybe a longer cycle, I suppose. Well, I think you've already mentioned some of the absolutely key things, particularly if you're going out riding by yourself, then it is advisable. Certainly, you know, fluids uh, are vital. So, you know, have one or two bottles of water, depending on the distance. You might even, if it's again, if it's a particularly hot day, you might put some electrolyte powder into one of those drinks uh, to try to mitigate the loss of salt uh, from your sweat. So that's, that's particularly helpful. But if you're out by yourself, tools are important. Uh, of course, there's no point in having a spare inner tube and tire levers and a pump if you don't know how to use them. So, you know, you should practice or know how to do it uh, by yourself because otherwise it doesn't matter if you've got the tools, you're still stranded if you can't actually change the tire. The list can get really long. I mean, I know some people who come out with uh, quick links to repair chains. They'll always bring two inner tubes. They'll bring a CO2 cylinder to reinflate tires. I mean, so you could get really big, but my essential ride kit will always be a pump. So a hand pump, uh, a spare inner tube, uh, a multi-tool that has all of the Allen keys that I need from my particular bike and tire lever so I can get the tire on and off uh, nice and easily. As well as that, I always have my phone with me. I'm lucky in that I've you know been into cycling long enough that I've got a cycling GPS computer. That one of the additional benefits of that, apart from being able to map your ride and know where you're going, is that you won't zap your phone battery using it to direct you. Uh, so I know a lot of people have got into trouble where their phone ran out of battery while they were out riding uh, because it was they were using it for their GPS and then they didn't have it to contact or to 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 do whatever if they were lost. Although we're living in a pretty cashless society now i would have always brought some cash with me and just stick it inside my phone cover or something like that as a little emergency get out of jail free like suddenly if you suddenly find yourself in a situation where you've got a puncture that you can't repair we've already repaired a puncture and you haven't got you've got another one and you need to get a taxi or something like i said nowadays it's pretty easy if you've got your phone and you've got contactless payment you should be all right but yeah you should always bring a bit of cash check the weather forecast <laughs> What kit should you wear? You know, is it a hot ride? Is, is it a rainy ride? Is it going to be really windy? Things like that. So bring the right kit. You know, that old saying, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad kit. So checking the weather forecast in advance. And, and this sort of season we're in now, so still in spring, is a notoriously difficult time to plan. So, you know, the best way to do that from your clothing perspective is have layers. So, if, you know, if you get hot, you can take things off and you can kind of be modular rather than like having one big heavy jacket then you get too hot, you take it off and you're like, okay, now I'm just down to a, a t-shirt. <laughs> so having layers allows you to kind of adjust as you go and you start getting into all the sorts of strange things like arm warmers and leg warmers and strange things like that. The nutrition thing, Andy and I spoke about just before and my, my, my take on this is that, you know, if you're riding for an hour, you, you probably ought not need much. Um, up to two hours, you might start to have nutritional needs. 
beyond two hours you definitely need nutritional needs and they need to start at the first hour in my opinion so if you know you're going to be riding for two plus hours you should be starting to feed yourself at the first hour so i'll normally take my first bit of food whether it's a gel or whether it's a flapjack or something like that at the first hour and then i'll normally be feeding either from on one of those medians uh, every 20 or 30 minutes if it's going to be a long ride after that i always take a mixture so too too many kind of sugary gels can really start to affect your stomach in not such a nice way um, and, and again if you guys have had running experience you'll have known that as well similarly but with cycling you can actually tolerate solid food much more easily because you're sat still on the bike uh, unlike running you would you probably wouldn't think about chewing down a big flapjack when you're out for a run but on a bike it's actually perfectly manageable because you're not moving up and down as much so i always mix sort of um solid food with gels i always mix some savory stuff again if i'm thinking about a really long ride like what you guys are doing i mix some savory stuff with some sweet stuff because sweet stuff really starts to repeat longer rides like that plan in a break know where there's going to be shops or know where there's going to be a cafe so you know right okay if i do run out of water i know there's a there's a shop there's going to be a town i'm going through because again if you find yourself it's a hot day and suddenly you've passed the last village and you're sort of 30 miles to the next place where you can actually get anything you're, you're going to be really in trouble so things like that planning out those things something andy and i also mentioned earlier was elevation that can make a massive difference to how 60 miles is going to feel 60 miles with 100 meters elevation not not much trouble 60 miles with you know a thousand meters elevation is a different ball game altogether uh, when those meters are climbing are and it tends, tends to be in the uk we tend to have repeated short sort of punchier climbs rather than big long climbs like you get in the mountains so i think that's sort of a something just to be aware of again in that planning and then finally how you do the ride pacing <laughs> you don't want to come out of the gun too hot and then find that you're absolutely flagging halfway around and you know you still got 40 miles to go so whatever you use for pacing, whether it's a you know heart rate monitor to give you some external feedback on, okay, I know what my, you know, you guys maybe know what your, your heart rate zones are, or what zone two aerobic sort of capacity is. So a heart rate monitor can be a nice little external bit of feedback of actually, yeah, I feel good, but I'm pumping it way too hard. Uh, and this way I'm going to be chewing through my energy and I'll have to stop. There's one other vital bit of kit that I learned my lesson with, bib shorts. These things are underrated, even though it does feel like you've got one of those. He's back to his wrestling know. again, Charlie. Yeah, but we all <laughs> we all know we all know those kind of pads that uh, our wives left um, the hospital with once they had children. Those kind of big old thick things. That's bib shorts in a nutshell, just with spandex around. It's like you're wearing a nappy. There's no doubt about it. Cycling shorts are really helpful, and bib shorts obviously you know why bib shorts versus regular shorts well i mean essentially the the, the bib straps help to hold them in position uh, more easily and and also help to stop you exposing uh your backside to anyone who might be having to have the misfortune of riding behind you so yeah they hold them in position they stop any draft in your lower back and they just are actually a bit of a weird thing but they're just much more comfortable to ride and they're designed to be cycling positioning so yeah i, I yeah if we want to get into cycling kit yeah absolutely a good set of good quality bib shorts is uh is an absolute must your fuel uh brian you said you mix the savory and the sweet give me some savory options i'm sure uh, that's the are you talking sandwiches or something what, what, what are you hitting up sausage rolls yeah even even like even like sandwich bread roll yeah sausage roll if, you, if you're stopping in a calf or something like that one of the classic cycling sort of snacks is like making what they call like rice cakes so again just you mix up rice and you can make any flavors I, I used to make um again when i was riding a lot more unfortunately two kids stops you riding as much as you might you might have otherwise done 
but yeah you just you can cook up some rice mix up like put put some put some eggs in there so a bit of scrambled eggs in through it uh, put some ham in through it as well season it whatever you like i mean but i used to just do that i put some cheese ham uh, an egg through some rice and you basically just form it into bars put it inside tinfoil and you've got this just like basically everything you need you've got a bit of protein you've got that kind of nice little salty hit again which is great if you've been sweating and riding quite a lot so getting a bit of salt in there and then you've got some pretty reasonably fast releasing carbohydrates in the white rice um so it's an app for me like rice rice bars like that and you can like i said you can flavor it however you like but they're an absolute winner because sweet stuff on repeat is is pretty brutal so we're just coming towards the end brian could you just tell our listeners a bit about how they might get in touch with you a best way for them to uh, either use your services or or to find out a bit more about your your clinic can you tell them about where they can find you yeah so my clinic that i set up is called the bike the body basically as i said i, I set it up to try to resolve that need for being able to understand both a cyclist body and a bike and putting the two together to make them work work sort of best and um, rather than like i said just just looking at adjusting someone's bike and ignoring sort of any musculoskeletal injuries so that, that that's that's kind of where i came from so the website is the bike the body.com or um instagram probably is where i'm most active from a social media perspective which is just at the bike the body i'm i'm more than happy for people to approach me on messages um like instant messages on instagram you can email me on info at the bike the body my clinic is just outside of bath it's probably the easiest uh sort of location that i can send you towards about 20 minute drive outside of bath and yeah I'm, I'm i'm there all week doing physio and bike fits and i'm you know do virtual appointments still because we know there's still a lot of people are either working from home and you know, it threw up some really interesting ones during the kind of pandemic. I had virtual patients in California, Scotland, Ireland. So, you know, it, it showed that there were no boundaries. And, you know, we did a couple of virtual bike fits. It's not something I kind of would recommend, really. It's, it, it's handy if someone's got skills in terms of adjusting their bike and they feel confident and safe to do that. But certainly, you know, I've done a lot and still do quite a bit of virtual physio stuff and virtual cycling specific physio work with people to help get them through, uh, getting through injuries and just, like I said, work on the very cycling specific physio input for someone who just feels that you know maybe they're seeing a physio and they're getting some good good ideas and good input but they need just some some more cycling specific input to to get them on track really so yeah i'm happy to be approached on any of those platforms and i can talk the hind le legs off a donkey on cycling and physio so you've got loads of great stuff on uh, youtube as well um is it the same handle for the youtube because there's loads of good videos on there as well yeah, when I've got time, I filter across some of the videos. I mean, as I said, most of the stuff's on Instagram, but I have I, I put up a YouTube page for some of the kind of longer longer format videos I've done on specific things like um, saddles, actually. Um, I just did a recent long format kind of one about delving into the world of <laughs> the confusing world of saddles and saddle comfort. So yeah, there's a couple of videos on YouTube and I'm just every now and again, try and drop a few over there. I can't Brian. say I'm as efficient as you guys on uh, your social media. So well done to you. <laughs> there's two of us. Yeah, thanks yeah, very much, helps. Brian. Yeah, thanks very much. You've been absolutely brilliant today. I'm absolutely convinced that half of that information was totally relevant for me. So I'll be stealing a lot of that and hopefully helping me out on this long ride that we've got coming up. Yeah, well, that's great. It was a pleasure to be on and I'm absolutely wishing you guys all the best for this bike ride. And, and of course, as I said, happy to support you. If we can somehow find a way to get you guys across and do some bike fitting um, stuff for you, it'd be, it'd be great uh, to try and do that before the event. And uh, yeah, I hope it all goes off without a hitch. Us too. <laughs>
because it felt like nobody else would actually want to listen to this podcast because it was just about our cycle to leads. Yeah. Although I guess it did sort of start to make the questions relevant to someone who is getting into something new, which was where we wanted it to go is that, you know, if I'm new to cycling, what do I need to do? How do I need to prepare? And and should I be doing something other than just cycling? So uh, I think I actually, helped us to get the answers not just for us but for hopefully other people asking the same questions that we're asking uh, and and what a great guest i mean he's got so much knowledge such clarity with the way of talking as well I, re- I really think there were some great key messages that came through definitely like you say it's we got to the crux of the conversation because we're both actually we both actually are novice cyclists we both need this information and he covered all all points that were relevant with evidence as well lots of uh, or bits of chat around, you know, little reviews and and studies and such that provide weight to the sort of things that Brian was bringing up. So, and also commenting that some of the some of the evidence wasn't super strong, but there was still a lean towards doing stuff. A bit, you know, a bit like the core stability part. Of it. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that in summary, it's cycling's booming in the country. Uh, it's safe. Build up slowly and check that you enjoy it before you start spending loads of cash once you like it then there might be a bit of money that you spend on certain things but more than anything it's about preparing and planning certain things i think that was that was what i took away and especially nutritionally on those longer cycles making sure that you're getting plenty of fuel in to to make sure those energy levels stay stay high and i know you've been bitten by that a couple of times already so yeah i thought it was just a real broad overview of so many good concepts and, and then yes uh, our, our favorite bias but a strength training probably doesn't do you any harm either if you're doing it in the, in the right way and planning it in the week the right in the right time absolutely the bit that shocked me uh, and we had a little bit of a conversation before we came on was the fueling i said to him you know um, i'm trying to be really diligent with my fuel i'm eating loads before i go i'm taking all my water and then i'm eating on on the hour every hour and he just sort of shook his head at me and was like mate you gotta eat more than that if you're going to cycle that far which was really good information because i never would have you know i thought on the hour every hour was pretty good i was you know at some points forcing food down me so i think there's some real good information there and lots to take from it and hopefully people enjoy that and do look brian up do do check out his instagram do check out his youtube and his website because there's there's so much more information than we've gone into today so if you want to go further into this if there's details that perhaps we sort of only covered a small amount of check out his page the bike fit body because there is so much on there yeah and i think we probably need to get a bike fit as well definitely yeah okay maybe we need to cycle nice little training ride down to bath get one done yeah i was thinking train down to bath yeah and then cycle a bit around bath and then i'll probably train back to <laughs> <laughs> slightly easier yeah fantastic all right well let's we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to the next episode and um hopefully we make it all the way to Leeds eh thanks for listening if you've enjoyed the show subscribe and give us a five star rating we'll keep bringing you the gold follow us on Instagram at the.healthspace and for any questions or ideas for future content email us at thehealthspace.co at gmail.com